and happy Sunday morning. It is 2 p.m. on the East Coast, and in Nova Scotia, it's 3.30. I bet you think I'm kidding. Welcome aboard. Nice to see everyone. A couple of early check-ins here. Iron Forest Knives, 93 and sunny in Oklahoma City. Almost Machining is here with, please stand by for this, 102 <laughs> and 22% relative humidity at 11 a.m. in the Phoenix. Uh, let's see, Butterfield Bates, 90 and sunny in Baltimore. And good travel weather, driving to upstate New York. Hey, well, I'll wave at you as you cross my latitude. Uh, Brian is here, 82 and heading to 85 in northeast Ohio. Welcome aboard, sir. Carl is here, and Robert Isaac is here. Uh, everybody rise, please. Be seated. Uh, Carl, welcome aboard. 83 and sunny in hot, humid Rhode Island. Uh, you can always go to the northern part of Rhode Island for a little different weather. Uh, let's see. Art that makes art. That would be Wes. Is hot in south-central Idaho. Is it hot enough for baking a potato? That's what I want to know. Or a potato, depending on where you come from. Let's see. We have uh, Unix Carbide is checking in on Discord. Welcome aboard, sir. He was here early to give me a technical check. Still, still sounds good. Oh, he's giving me a weather report. Uh, oh, I have to do something here. There, now I could read your thing. He says 87F and 30 relative humidity and beautiful in Brooklyn, my hometown. Good to, uh, good to hear you. By the way, I got to tell you, um, uh, Unix, uh, it's... <laughs> Uh, Judge Robert Isaac says uh, it is snowing in Chicago. I, I do not believe you, sir. I do not believe you one little bit. <laughs> so, Unix, I got to tell you that uh, my friend Doug, who was here in the live last week, makes bagels. And I have to brag on his bagels. Let's see if I could bring up a bagel picture here. Uh, let's see. Oh, yeah. Okay, hold on to your seats. Are you ready for this? Where's my slideshow? Oh, I put it on top. That's why I can't find it. No, it's this way. <laughs> Look at these bagels. Uh, Doug made, like, stunning bagels. Right. Uh, no, there's a lot of... So So Unix says, as a New Yorker with a tiny kitchen, I have never, ever conceived of making bagels at home. And he says, those look fantastic. These are Doug's bagels, man. They are fantastic, and they're a magnificent work of engineering uh, and, and a, a triumph uh, in technology. So seriously, they were awesome. <laughs> I'll leave those up for a while so you guys can drool. Flat Lapper is here, 76 and mostly sunny in northern Illinois. No snow. However, if you said mostly sunny, so when it's not sunny, what is it? It's probably hailing. 76. Actually, 76 sounds nice. I'll give my report here in uh, Windham, New Hampshire. It's 83. With a relative humidity ranging between, I have no idea, and we can't tell. We'll get to talk about that a little little more yeah so uh doug makes bagels and it turns out that making bagels is complicated <laughs> carl carl correctly points out if you're a new yorker you don't need to make bagels that's true i used to uh i used to go up to the bagel shop there were a couple of bagel shops around where i grew up obviously because it's brooklyn but um i used to get a salt bagel a warm salt bagel and that was the best thing ever and it would make pretzels you know sh put pre pretzels to shame it was awesome but uh let's see doug brought over um everything bagel uh, a sesame seed bagel onion bagel um i think he might have had a plain bagel in there um 
and they were just fantastic. I, I can't say enough good things. Okay, I better stop talking about bagels or we're all going to have to go out for, for bagels. So uh, the bagels were were stunning. Yeah, <laughs> I, see, Unix is heading out the door to get bagels. Uh, and the technology involved with making bagels includes boiling and, if you do it right, boiling in sodium hydroxide. Yes, lie. I, I cannot lie to you. <laughs> K-Bonk says he has no idea the temperature in Philadelphia is somewhere in the 90s. Well, we'll, we'll have you anyway. You don't, you don't need to have a temperature to get in here. Carl says, a bagel warm from the oven is like from the hand of God. You are correct, sir. Um, and we do not call them toroidal bread units. If you say that, you're out. Um, so, yeah, you boil them and lie. And, and there's all sorts of technology. It's not simple. And uh, if you look at Doug's... Okay, I'll put it up one more time. i got to brag about Doug's bagels. He's going to laugh when he, when he hears this. Um, Doug makes bagels completely symmetrically. They don't have a top and a bottom. It's a miracle. And he, he, he slyly grinned and told me, that's part of my process. So he worked really hard to make that happen. Iron Forest, Ni Iron Forest Knives said, you, you saying I can make bagels and anodize aluminum at the same time? Yes. Yes, you could. And I want, I want the full report after you taste that bagel. Uh, almost says... <laughs> He's going to make me a sensor pack. That does several calculations. We'll get to we're going to get to that. Uh, the whole relative humidity thing has been, uh, you know, once you go down that rabbit hole, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. K. Bonk says I like fork cut bagels, nooks and crannies. Listen, th that's not a bagel, okay? Let's just get the nooks and crannies thing out of the way. Uh, a bagel is not an English muffin. I will say, however, that a bialy is closer to an English muffin uh, in terms of texture. But we're not going to get into that. It will be here for three hours instead of one hour. Why bagels when you could just make pretzels, asks almost. I mean, if yeah. So that is, uh, Doug educated me that pretzels and, and we're talking the soft pretzels, not the crunchy ones, pretzels and bagels share that process. They both are uh, get boiled in lye. And that's what gets you that brown, that beautiful brown uh, coating. I'm just starting to, I'm like drooling here. Where's my, I need a drink. So, uh, so welcome. I guess we should like serve bagels for next Sunday. What do you think? Uh, Unix says, not enough room on a pretzel to get enough cream cheese and locks on it. That's correct. That is a defect. But I don't want to explain that to everybody up here in the Northeast as to why that is an, a, a terrible defect. Anyway, we had a good time. Um, but the you know the, the the point is that Doug was over. We had bagels, and we talked about relative humidity. <laughs> so we've gone down this rabbit hole, and I have to say that Doug. Uh, has some signif significant expertise in this area because he did some work for um, a company that made equipment to measure um, uh, moisture content in plastics. Does that sound familiar? So there's a lot of he has he has a lot of cool information and techniques and knowledge that we're going to uh, uh, tap into in the 3D printing department. Um. <laughs> yeah, mustard does go on pretzels. Mustard does not go on bagels. And this is all coming from a guy that's relatively low carbohydrates. So I, I'm not a big bread eater, but I woofed down one and a half of Doug's uh, bagels the other day. That was pretty astounding. So uh, let's see. We have a couple of things on the agenda today. Um. And we are going to talk a little bit about relative humidity and the, the pain 
of measuring it and controlling it. Um, one thing that, uh, and, and oh, by the way, if anybody has any questions, topics, stuff you want to talk about today uh, that I might not have on the agenda, do not hesitate to put it in the chat. Uh, you are watching or listening to the PFG Live, uh, the podcast that says you're PFG and so can we. Um, so let's get on to it. We have discovered and proved unequivocally that the moisture content of filaments um, is an important factor in how well they print and how consistently they print. So if we start with dry filaments and we have dry filaments, everything works the same every time. And when you let a roll of filaments sit around and its relative humidity or its, its uh, absorbed moisture starts rising, then it just starts changing. And then you start pulling your hair out and wondering why that print that you did last week worked great and now it works terribly and you're using the same filament and I think I'm going to change brands of filament and I'm going to change all my parameters and no, you need to have dry filament. Fortunately, there are dryers now that uh, somebody sent me a picture who, who bought it. Oh, it was Unix. You, you sent me a picture of... Uh, see if you could put that picture up in Discord chat. Uh, that would be kind of uh, useful. Uh, maybe it'll show up on the screen. But one example of a nice uh, dryer for filament that's available out there. So we don't have any more excuses. But we're trying to measure the relative humidity of a stored container of filament. Let's see if I can get you a picture of that. And the reason is, is that we, we need to know if um, our filament is in a, a good environment or a bad environment. Because if it's sitting in a bad environment, we have to go dry it so that we know what condition it's in. There you go. So as we previously talked about, these sterilite containers, which are 4.7 quarts, are perfect for one roll of filament. Unix Carbide on our Discord server. By the way, if you if you use Discord, you're welcome to join our Discord server. Uh, the invite link is in the links page at pfg.gg slash links. So uh, Unix Carbide just put up on the screen a picture of a couple of spools in, his, in one of these dryers. Um, it's also kind of funny. It's very germane to what we're going to be talking about because it shows... A digital hygrometer and it shows an analog hygrometer and they don't agree at all <laughs> so so Doug was over with bagels and we, we were we were talking about all this relative humidity stuff and measurements and uh, he's been using this uh, eval board for a component which is a relative humidity measurement module and getting really good results and 2% accuracy, let's just call it 2% accuracy, and it costs 30 bucks. So we're not going to throw one of those in each one of our filament containers when we have these, these little round guys, right, that cost literally 3 bucks. <laughs> so I believe the link is in my links page, but this is uh, six of them, I think, at about 3 bucks a piece. Um, and you can tell even as I'm holding it, I'm changing both the relative humidity and the temperature. So it's kind of cool to have a cheap solution we can throw in every one of these containers and monitor our conditions. So the picture that's up on the screen shows one of my containers with a spool of filament, one of my desiccant uh, containers, which was designed by others, with one of our little round $3 hygrometers. And in the picture, it says 10%. And, and I can tell you that that's the number that, um, I don't know if it's a Solval unit, uh, frankly. Um, not sure. There are a couple of different flavors of these round guys that you can buy on, uh, on Amazon. And I don't know. I can't recall which company made these, but we'll get to that. Um, so that thing is saying 10%. When I start off with, 
with a dry container with dry desiccant, it never goes below 10%. So the first thing we discovered on these units is they don't go below 10% uh, reading. They can't read lower than 10%. But then we started discovering that these units are not very accurate at low relative humidities. And Doug had a theory that they were designed for um, humidors that care about relative humidities of about 50%. Uh, K-Bonk says, single containers versus large tote with several spools. Argument. You want to start an argument? I'll start an argument. The reason I like the single containers is that you, when you open it and, and naturally let room air in, you're o- you only have one container that has to recover to equilibrium as opposed to a cooler, for example, that has a bunch of spools in it. Actually, Doug's been having good luck with five-gallon buckets, which have, he might get away with four spools in there, um, maybe five. So I kind of like the single-spool, single-container argument because it gives you just more control over the thing you're fighting, which is humidity. Uh, That's my argument. Plus, you could rearrange, you know, resort things on shelves, and and do that that sort of stuff so that's that's why i like it um so we discovered some inaccuracies at low uh humidity levels we discovered um some some kinks in the curve apparently (laughs) unix carbide says individual spool versus larger container that's boxers versus briefs in his opinion (laughs) i can't disagree so uh, let me read you a quote from Doug that I got, I think, today. I think we were communicating. Um, he says, I continue to titrate the hygrometer. So let me explain what Doug is doing. Doug has a sealed container with a reference hygrometer that we believe is a 2% accuracy and is good down to 0% relative humidity uh, by spec. And he has... Um, uh, one or more of our little $3 guys, okay? And I think he has one or more of these new cards that we that you see on your screen, but we haven't started talking about yet. And he has uh, a, a port uh, and a paper towel. So the port is a hole in the container that he can dribble in uh, a little bit of water and then close up again. So he's been taking this container from a very low Hey, Machine and Z. Uh, thanks for popping in, buddy. Nice to hear from the other side of the uh, planet. Uh, have a great day at work and a great week, buddy. Um, Flat Lapper says, I'm thinking larger for longer-term storage uh, and individual for you most used or changed. Whatever floats your boat. But a- after we're done today, see if you still think that same um, idea for storage. So... Doug's container can be adjusted in relative humidity by him titrating, uh, dribbling in a little bit of of, uh, water, and then letting it settle. And settling is literally a 24-hour process. So he's been walking the relative humidity of this container up very slowly and observing the different hygrometers that are in the container. So this is a right, proper engineering approach to uh, measuring the response of these things. So here's, uh, let me go on with what he has to say. He says, somewhere between 28.8% and 29.3%, it jumps from reading 10% to 15%. It reads 20% at 30.4% on the accurate one and 21% and 30.8% on the accurate one. I suspect it will track close to one-to-one from from there up, but we'll see over the next week or so. So what Doug is implying is what we figured out, is that this, these things are designed for the 50% relative humidity region, and they are not good at the very low relative humidity region. So I've changed my um, policy on these things, and they read 10%. When I fill them with a fresh, you can see in the picture here, uh, 
the blue desiccant, right? That's that's indicating uh, silica gel. When I when I use fresh indicating silica gel uh, in a container and every and seal it up, I, I very quickly get to ten ten percent on the reading. However, I had said before that I was letting it get up to fifteen percent before I change it out, assuming I was getting decent numbers. I have changed that policy. I'm still using them. I still will use them to 12%. Might not be perfect, but when it says 12%, I pay attention to it and maybe give it a, a new refill on its uh, desiccant. And they've been working fine. And the the indicator desiccant, that blue stuff turning pinkish, um, works very, very nicely. And if if these if these three dollar hygrometers do anything, it's just you could just think of it as as a go no go indicator. And you know, ten percent is you're probably fine. Twelve percent is you're probably not fine. Um, and just for for grins and chuckles, I have another hygrometer sitting here in the office. This one is a Lacrosse Technology that I've had for a while. These are nice. They're they're uh, uh, good looking units that could sit sit on the desk or hang on the wall. This one says 40% relative humidity right now. And this little round guy that admittedly I've been touching uh, is saying 52%. Pretty big discrepancy. So should we care about this? Well, there's a, a, small, a small number of nerds in the community in which I consider myself a member. Um, we should think about it and get a handle on measuring this stuff. But for the most part, if you're doing anything like what we're talking about, you're probably fine. So Doug and I continued the conversation, and he said, uh, you know, you can get these cards, these humidity indicator cards. And so I've been playing with these. I've got to cover up my eyeballs. There we go. The, I've been playing with these guys. And you'll note that inside these black circles, if you're watching the video, which I strongly recommend at some point, uh, inside the black circles, it says 5%. 10% and 15%. When you pull these out of the can, this is how they come. They come in a they come in what looks like a paint can and it's sealed up. And when you open it up, you see, you know, a pile of cards and two packets of uh, silica gel desiccant. And when you pull these guys out, they are blue. Blue, blue and blue. And you know, I would imagine that the first thing that changes is the 5% would change from blue to pink. And then eventually the next one up would do, do it. When I took this card out and I just left it in the room, all the dots turned from blue to basically white um, overnight, which is not surprising, seeing as the room uh, relative humidity is probably around 50%. Um, and, and oh, keep in mind, there's a bunch of species of these cards. You can get them in different ranges and stuff. And you'll notice that there's a federal specification on top, J standard 033A, which probably has to has something to do with packing, you know, equipment made under government contract. So I threw this guy, if you look at the picture, I threw it into a container with filament and my hygrometer in that container was reading 10% figuring it would recover to some number that's around 10% or lower. Then I took a brand new one out of the can directly into the same container. So that's the picture you're seeing on your screen. I am here to tell you that after an sitting overnight, the one that was brand new turned basically all white, indicating greater than 15% relative humidity. And the one that was in the kitchen that turned all white stayed all white. So it's not it's not encouraging that these cards are are, are worth it. They are cheap, however. <laughs> and for example, you get this can, and I think this can was 35 bucks, and there's 125 cards in it. So these are these are cheaper than dirt. Um, but I did not get a warm, fuzzy feeling about them actually making a measurement. Uh, the one on the right of the photo where it was thrown into my fresh desiccant uh, container theoretically should have stayed either all blue 
or maybe the the 5% would have turned pink. But instead, it faded a lot, which indicates greater than, you know, 15% or there, thereabouts. So I'm not feeling too too good about these things. And, and I thought this might be a good cheap approach. And I now think that that might have been a waste of money. But we have them. We'll use them. We'll continue to observe to see how um, potentially useful they are as we go forward. But I wasn't too thrilled with that. So as Doug and I talked, and I realized that the... Um, the sensor that his eval board, which cost 30 bucks, by the way, the sensor on it is, is available to design into new circuits. And we talked about, hey, maybe we should come up with our own you know, little sensor that is accurate at the low end. So we're going to start that conversation. Another... Another potential approach is to break this guy open and reverse engineer it. And if we could figure out a quick and easy modification that makes it better at the low relative humidity, then we'll, we'll figure it out and publish it and, um, and maybe modify them and sell the modified units uh, for small nickels. Um, oh, there's another important point about these $3 units, which I want to bring up. And that is that Doug observed that the battery, as the battery runs down, the relative humidity uh, measurement on the screen starts going up, indicating a voltage um, dependency. And you can, he said you could also start seeing effects in the LCD as the, as the battery starts dying. None of this should inspire great confidence in these $3 hygrometers. And I will, however, say that the most important thing about them is that they're, you know, $3. So stay tuned. We will give you more information as it becomes available. Um, but keep your, keep your filament dry. <laughs> That's the, there, there's the overriding message. Um, and speaking of filament dry, I have a few examples of dry filament things um so as you may have noticed i'm dealing with an elbow uh what's affectionately known as tennis elbow uh and i'm back in pt and also dealing with some other things and i the ergonomics of using a trackball grab by my number two trackball here which is unfortunately still plugged in there we go so i use a trackball okay and, and I settled on one, and I think I bought four or five of these because I have workstations all over the, all over the place. Um, what did you find there, Unix? Unix found something in, in, in jedic.org. Did you find the standard that we were just talking about? Can you give us a one-sentence? Um, yeah, link to the standard. Uh, cool. Uh, can you give us a one-sentence uh, explanation of what the standard's about? And we'll, we'll let everybody know. Thanks for doing the research. I appreciate it. So the ergonomics of this trackball were such that my my wrist was operating at a little bit elevated bend angle here, right? And I think this is contributory. So I wanted to change the angle of, of the trackball. So the concept of prototype fast is, is not... You know, we, we put that into into full operation. And I immediately modeled the bottom of the trackball, which is what this print is, okay? And then I added features to, the, to that model to capture the trackball. So you can see a little round, a little round feature and a little rectangular feature. And on the bottom of the trackball, you can see there's a round hole and a rectangular hole. So now we had, we had a, a way of capturing the trackball. That was prototype number two. These took 12 minutes, I think, or 15 minutes to print. Uh, number three improved those, right, based on the observations, both in position and size. 
So there's uh, prototype number three. And then finally, prototype number four was, uh, let's see, where is it? Um, I'm using it, that's the problem. <laughs> prototype number four uh, looks like this, and it's a 10 degree wedge. So it elevates the trackball 10 degrees, and that works fantastically. Which trackball? I knew you'd ask me that. I will tell you. Um, so now my trackball sits with a 10-degree elevation. But that's not the point. The point is this concept of, of rapid prototyping. Okay? So each one of these prototypes lasted about 20 minutes on my desk before I went ahead and did the next thing. So here's, uh, I call this V6. Uh, this is a, pretty much the last of the uh, development. You can see I got rid of the lightening holes, and there's two features there to pick up the bottom of the trackball. It has the 10-degree wedge shape to it to tilt the, the trackball forward. But now, if you look at it from the front, it also has 8 degrees of roll to it. So not only does it tilt the trackball forward, but it rolls the, the whole assembly to my pinky, okay? And to me, that felt good. That felt like the, um, the best position for this trackball. So as I actually put the trackball I'm using back on it, um, that works super, super well. Um, the trackball I'm using is called a Deft Pro, D-E-F-T Pro. And it's just the one I chose. Uh, you could use it wired or wireless. Um, you could use it Bluetooth or proprietary. It's it's pretty pretty cool. You could use it on batteries. You could plug it in uh, at my desk. I have it plugged in, but I have one that I I take on the road, and it has batteries in it. So so this this was a great example of prototype fast and release fast. So each one of these prototypes was li literally uh, you know, ha half an hour of between design, print, and evaluate, which I think is pretty cool. This one you know, obviously took a lot longer to prototype, and then I put rubber baby buggy bumper bumpers on the bottom so it didn't slide around on the desk, and then in the next version, I had recesses to accommodate the rubber baby buggy bumpers. Um, and that worked out great. So there's a little story about rapid prototyping. Here's another story about rapid pro prototyping. And that is um, my, my son plays this card game called Magic the Gathering. And in doing so, you, you're playing with a deck that you design that uh, has 100 cards in it. And we bought a commercial box and his cards didn't fit. They, they were too numerous to fit in the box. And then we realized he was putting the cards in a plastic sleeve and then putting that in another plastic sleeve to super protect the cards. This made them thicker. So now 100 of his cards don't fit in a 100-card commercial box. So we quickly whipped up, again... There's prototype number one, or P1, right? And, you know, the first goal was to get this lid right. Well, the lid was a little loose. And I had given it, I think, 15 thousandths of clearance, way too much. So I cut that clearance in half, and then I printed the next prototype. And that was much better. And then we started developing a latch that involved a... Uh, a spherical section cut into one side and then a projection into the other side. And those two tabs were on opposite sides of the box. So it added a little bit of artistic flavor, but it also is to give it a little bit of a latching mechanism. Okay, so you can see it is, it is working, but it's a little bit light. So we are going to... Um, increase the latching so that was p2 p3 
I, I need to spend a few minutes. We'll probably have that uh, printing today. But another great example of rapid prototyping. By the way, all this yellow stuff you're seeing is PLA. Regular, boring, cheap PLA. Now, how does that connect to our dry filament campaign? Well, these things are gorgeous. I mean, you know, regular run-of-the-mill PLA stuff coming off the Bamboo X1C printer is spectacular, right? The surface finish and the, you know, everything is great. So you could run it fast, reliable, perfect. If it's dry, <laughs> if it's wet, I don't know what you're going to get. And different filaments behave differently. Uh, PETG, which I use a lot of, if it gets wet, it starts acting up, and it's not pretty, so you have to keep it dry. So that that's another example of the rapid prototyping, and uh, very, very happy about that. Uh, I'm going to take a sip of water. If any of you guys have any more questions, drop them in the, in the, uh, in the thing, and, and then we'll get on to the next topic. Unix Carbide says that the federal standard referred to on these humidity cards, J standard 033A, is the joint IPC JEDEC standard for handling, packaging, shipping, and use of moisture slash reflow sensitive surface mount devices. So it's for packaging uh, of electronic devices, surface mount devices. And Doug was explaining to me that a lot of electronic components, when you look on a circuit board and you see the little black uh, integrated circuits and other components that are in a plastic package, it's in a plastic package. So they are worried about moisture absorption into the plastic of the electronic parts. Because when it goes into reflow, what happens? That absorbed moisture is going to come out as steam and can screw up a reflow soldering process. So they care about that. Uh, Unix Carbide says, you have blue. I use orange. Is the desiccant one uses akin to the lightsaber color in the Star Wars universe? The answer is, yes, it is. And my lightsaber is blue. I respect you for having an orange one. We can get along. Uh, but more seriously, he says, is there a difference? I have no idea. Um, if, it's, if it's silica gel, which I, I trust it is, then silica gel and silica gel are basically the same thing. However, there is a difference in chemicals. Um, and... What I've learned is that that lovely blue color, let me turn on the, uh, the picture again, that lovely blue color, which is over here, okay, is a cobalt-based compound, and you do not want to be eating the cobalt-based compound. Please do not eat the blue stuff. So... I am guessing that the orange indicator is a different chemistry and probably may be better for your health. I have chosen to stick with the blue stuff because the contrast is excellent. Uh, I'm colorblind to a small extent, and I think it works great, and I don't eat it. I try not to eat it at all, so that's that's the story. So that's purely a theory i'm making that up but it's probable does that answer the question iron forest <laughs> oh unix you're funny i i'll get you i'll get you an answer to that question that's definitive you know what you do ask for the msds which they now call the sds uh something data sheet safety data sheet for that product and we'll get the SDS for the the cobalt-containing blue product, and we'll look at them, and it'll tell us the truth. So here's a tip. If I've been droning on here, if this is a tip for everything. When you see a product, typically a more you know 
chemical-y product, and you want to know what's in it, yes, read their ingredients, but also ask for the safety data sheet, what we used to call the material safety data sheet, the MSDS. And it will give you, it has to, by law, it will give you some important chemical identification and they'll make it a little obfuscated. They'll say somewhere between 5 and 25% of, you know, sodium cyanide or something. Um, but it will tell you, it will tell you um, what's in there. That's a really good thing to do, both from a safety standpoint and a nerd standpoint. And Unix says he likes to put orange stuff on his bagels. Yes, but that's different. <laughs> that's marine-based orange stuff. Uh, this just in from Iron Forest Knives. He says, I bought a bamboo P1P last week based on your recommendation. It's been printing since I got it Thursday. Very pleased with it. Already ordered the P1S upgrade kit, LOL. That's good news. I've been very, very happy with my bamboo printers. And they've been, they've been busy with um, engineering work. They've been obviously doing production work for the trays and now the balancing stands. More on that shortly. And uh, they've been great. Um, Machine NZ, weren't you supposed to be going to work? Dude, I don't want to be blamed for making you late to work. Oh, now he's off to work. <laughs> okay, he says, I helped a guy develop a tool for the supermarket industry. I 3D printed a range of prototypes for him. To injection mold, these would have been a ridiculous price. That idea, and now gone to patent. Beautiful. Perfect. Uh, get to work. Get to work. We won't talk about anything interesting, I swear. I'll wait till you shut the door. Is he gone? Did he, did he leave? Okay. We can talk about him now. Um, I'll tell you, these guys in New Zealand. So, that's a perfect example of of doing stuff. You could tell a you could tell a customer. I experienced this a lot. You you could tell a customer, you know, give them five different options of a physical thing and they think they understand it. But if you put five 3D printed things in their hands, it's a whole new world. And the same is true for us. Until we get the 3D printed thing in our hands, we don't get our heads around it, which is the basis of a story I'm about to tell you. Um, I think I'll save it for last because it's the best. Uh, it's the best thing. So um, there you go. <sighs> That's a lot to talk about, and it's just relative humidity. <laughs> it's not a you know, it's it's a dry heat, Sarge. That's what we need to know. Okay, let's talk a little bit about this week's tool of the week. So, um, Octane, uh, uh, Octane Work Holding, one of my, uh, one of my buddies, um, he posted a, like a reel that was, you know, some fast paced, cool video about a little shop tip. And it caught my eye, not because I've never seen it before, but because I had a problem that needed solving sitting in the shop and this was the solution. And, you know, I needed a, a good kick in the proverbial butt to, uh, to figure it out. And that is these uh, Noga uh, deburring tools for the bottom of a, a blind hole. So if you, you drill a hole, maybe tap a hole, and now there's, there's a, an edge on the bottom that you can't quite get to. Which number is this? No, this is the small one. I need an X one up. Um, so let me show you this tool. It's the neatest thing ever. It is a deburring tool, okay, with a little floppy end. So you can flop it over, stick it in the hole, and then unflop it, and it becomes a little triangle, right? And you pull that hard up against the... Uh, the, what, what would be the top of the hole right inside and you and then you can deburr the back of it here's a perfect example tell me if this piece of metal looks familiar to you uh, this is the b200 balancing ring okay and this is an old one that has some stains on it don't don't panic 
there is a set screw hole right there, okay? Well, that set screw hole gets a nice healthy chamfer on top, but it, it's really hard to get the, the hole at the center of the ring, or not the center, but the inside surface of the ring. How do you deburr that? So I do use a Harvey back chamfer tool that drops that drops into the hole, okay, and then it goes around the bottom of the hole and it has a 45 degree angle and it, it does a chamfer, but it's not enough. I need a bigger chamfer, but I can't stick a bigger tool, a bigger Harvey tool down there because of the diameter of the hole. Along comes this Noga tool and you basically push the little button, it's like, like a pen, stick it in the hole, okay, and then when you pull it out, it, it turns into that, that uh, what would we call that? A V-shape, I guess. And now you turn it and you can deburr the bottom of that hole. And in fact, this one, <laughs> this one has a nice big burr on it. Let's see. You're screwing up my demo, dude. Yeah, there we go. Anyway, and it removes the burr. When you're, when you're done doing that, you push the button and you slide it out. So this thing uh, is going to save my... Uh, oh, I see. This, this, this is out of tolerance. That's why it's kicking around. Um, this thing is going to save my bacon. Let me, let me demonstrate it on one of the other holes once again. If you're listening on the podcast, I'm so sorry. So there it is. Pops through. Pull back, deburr. Okay, push the button, and and you could pop it back out if you do it right. Okay. So these tools are, are pretty cool. They come in a uh, three different sizes. The one we just used is called the RC two thousand by Noga. I'll put links to these on my links page, but I haven't done it yet. The second one is called the RC-1000, and that's cute as a button. Little teeny thing, okay? And then the third one, I bet you can't guess what it's called. What do you think it's called? That's correct. It's the RC-2200. <laughs> I'm not making it up. It's the RC-2200, and that's the big boy, okay? And I think the one you saw on Octane's... Um, uh, video was the big boy okay and they they're pretty useful so i i will be using these to deburr the back of the holes on the balancing rings that one that one pain in the neck hole so that my fingers uh like it it's not critical it doesn't change the operation of the part but i kind of want to make it feel a little better so the uh, noga RC-1000, RC-2000, and RC-2200. I bought them through McMaster Car. Um, like I said, I'll put links on the links page when I get a chance. If you don't have them, I recommend you buy them. Uh, so that's the, that's the tool of the week, and I love it. If anybody else has solutions for doing that deburr uh, on the bottom of a hole that you can't get to, please let me know. Um, this is an interesting problem that needs solving. Uh, and one of the, one of the, the challenges of my setup is I can't, I can't go in very deep under that hole because there's the expanding mandrel that's holding the thing in the machine. And I don't want another setup. So it's either do that one deburr operation, um, by hand or, or don't do it at all with both of which are acceptable, but anyway, we'll see. And uh, balancing rings are back in stock. So the B200 balancing ring is back in stock, uh, which is good because the balancing stand <laughs> is going to require balancing rings. And the balancing stand is coming along awesomely well. Okay, let, let's talk a little bit about the balancing stand. So as you know, the balancing stand was a project that's been hanging over my head for um, kind of like, years and i finally uh got it sorted out and i absolutely love how it came out 
So if you're, again, on video, here's the balancing stand. Uh, I'm going to spin it around so that you see the front. Okay. And it is, it came out just wonderfully and it works beautifully. I balanced wheels with it and it's just a joy. So I can't wait to get this ready for you to order. Um, and as you can tell, this is, this is a 3D printed part. And it's 3D printed with dry filament. So the other innovation was the 3D printed arbor, which uh, is just ridiculously good. Uh, I, got a, I got a request. One, so, somebody sent me a message and said, hey, I wonder if I could use that for balancing my uh, turbine blades, I guess a little model turbine engine. Um, and the answer is, if you guys have an application that needs a different shaped arbor or a different shaped taper for your arbor or whatever, let me know. I, I have a sense of humor. This could be interesting. But there's the design. And one of the things in this design is this little V-shape here. Okay. And the V-shape uh, does a couple things. It, it removes unnecessary material. Uh, it looks cool. Uh, and it gives you a place to store the arbor. See that? The old balancing stand did not have a place to store the arbor. And I was coming up with a nice way to do it. So, as I do with a lot of products, this thing was sitting on the table next to my comfy chair in the living room while I was icing my elbow. I bet you didn't think I was going to tie this all together. Um, and I was looking at what needed doing. And, you know, for example, I was feeling the, um, the, the tightness of the, of the rods in their captures. I mean, they're, they're well captured. But I was kind of saying, well, maybe I want it a little tighter. We'll have to see. But in terms of product development, I like I like having the unit in front of me so I could mess with it and, and see what needs changing and what needs improving. Um, and as a result, because my right arm was in a in a big ice pack, and my wife came over, and she said she brought me some food or something to put on the table to the other side of me. And she said, I'm going to, I have to move this. And I said, Oh, can you just move it and put it on the coffee table? So she picks it up. I'm going to demonstrate what happened here. She picks it up and the arbor slides out and falls into the middle. And I looked at that and I go, that's really, it's kind of annoying how, while while the arbor has a place to be, it's a very it's a. <laughs> I bet you think I planned that. It's a very slippery place, and it won't stay there. So I'm changing the design. So I'm going to be adding. Um, I'm going to be adding a little feature that captures the arbor here, so that when you put the arbor in, it it can't wiggle out and slide out the side of the the housing it, this sounds like a stupid small thing we're talking about one gram of of plastic maybe a couple of grams of plastic a little bit of design work so it looks nice but it's going to be better it's going to be a lot better so the fact that this thing was sitting around and so that i could stare at it and my wife picked it up and went to move it and the silly arbor slid out just like just like it slid out for us right now. So now what'll happen is there'll be a feature. I'm putting, I'm holding this up to the camera with a finger on either end of the, of the, of the arbor rod and it won't be able to slide out anymore. And that's really useful. So, you know, this product development stuff. Now let's just imagine, let's just imagine that we developed this product using standard, you know, engineering think. And, you know, we got it all ready and then we maybe machined a, a couple of prototypes or whatever. And maybe we even started uh, machining the injection mold for this new plastic product. And then all of a sudden somebody, somebody figured out <laughs> that, that the arbor wasn't staying where it was designed to stay. Oh, let's make a modification. How many dollars is that going to cost? But because we're using a 3D printing process, 
we could say, oh my God, that's a great idea. Do a design change and literally the next one that leaves the door can have the improvement. This, this is not for making toys anymore, folks. This is phenomenal. So that's what's happening with the balancing stand, okay? By the way, the name, we, we've come up with the model number. Um, it's the BS1, the balancing, I'm sorry, BS8, because it could take an 8-inch wheel. So this is the BS8. And just watch for, watch for the new artwork <laughs> soon, because as you know, we have fun with our stuff. So uh, when you buy one of these, it's going to have that feature. Not one has left the, the building without that feature yet. So isn't that neat? That is another advantage of 3D printed uh, products that are well engineered that when you want to put another feature in, the very next product is going to have it, which I think is fantastic. Besides the fact that you don't have to maintain, you know, ridiculous inventory levels, etc., etc., etc. Uh, DBX, hey man, I saw you, you can't sneak in. I saw you sneak in the back of the room and sit down and start taking notes as if nobody noticed. Um, DBX says, I think there's a whole discussion to be had about revision responsibility to customers. Folks get annoyed when somebody pays for something and then what seems like 10 minutes later, a fix that is unavailable to them is deployed. This is a timely comment. As you guys know, I own a Ford F-150 Lightning truck. And Ford just announced price reductions on the Ford F-150 Lightnings. Well, how would you feel if you spent $90,000 on a truck that you can now go and buy for $70,000? I mean, literally, theoretically you could have bought it on a Wednesday and then on Friday you could have other people can buy the same truck for $70,000. Does does Ford owe you anything? Um and the answer is they owe you as much as they have to give you to get you to shut up. <laughs> right? So I mean if they can get away with it and and cause you to just you know, that's the way it is. That's preferable to them because guess what? That's kind of the way it is. So that's what's happening in the in the Ford F-150 Lightning world right now. So let's extend your question to what I just described. What if you bought a balancing stand, you know, last week and you got it and it works and everything's wonderful and then they said, hey, there's this new feature. It's now, it's now the... BS8A and now you say oh oh geez uh, what am I going to do about that well the, the 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 answer unfortunately is the same it's like if everybody's happy with their product and it's doing what it's doing then there's nothing to be done on the other hand if it's something that's upgradable like you add a thing to it like you oh put a screw here then giving you the screw is not a bad thing to do. But if I have to replace the whole product, I don't want to do that. However, if you contact me and you said, hey, uh, boy, you know, I really want the feature of my arbor not falling out the thing. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to figure out a way to get you the new one. And I want to keep a happy customer. So have I done that before? Yes, I have. And I'll do it again. Is Ford going to do that? They're going to do something similar. If somebody yells a lot, somebody's going to get taken care of. Um, I don't think they're going to take this policy of, too bad, you bought it on Friday, and uh, or you bought it on Wednesday, and it wasn't Friday, and that's the way it is. Yeah, and, and uh, DBX says it. there might be a difference between changing the price and fixing a flaw. So... Okay, changing the price is something that we covered, fixing a flaw. If there is truly a flaw in the product, I think you got to do something about fixing the flaw. 
you know. Uh, I'll tell you a story that happened to me about two months ago. Indiana John says, "Did I do I win the latest tune in?" And you know what the answer is? We don't know yet. <laughs> Stay tuned. But I'm glad you're here. Um, so a couple of months ago, I'm gonna confess, guys. Okay, I I was grinding tired, and you shouldn't grind tired. Um, and. I packaged up a bunch of products and I think I think it was six inch stones and as I got to the end of packaging the last one I noticed a defect in the grind which I will not let out the door so that's easy but now I said to myself uh oh or do any of the previous ones in this batch have that defect and I'm, I'm telling the story a little bit incorrectly because I had already shipped one and I discovered that I had a problem with that batch that I didn't catch oh trust me that's not going to happen again I immediately sent an email to the customer who placed the order with me and I said listen um, when you get your package it's on the way when you get it do not open it i am shipping you right now a replacement package and i packaged up a replacement and i sent it to him i think at a faster rate like second day air he in fact got the um got the stones he 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 shipped me the um the defective stones well the allegedly defective stones and I was just sweating. Like, I did not want this guy to open up the package and see a defective product or a substandard product. Or worse, a product that he thinks that I thought was good. Well, catastrophe averted. He sent them back. He got his stones. He was very happy. Really happy. In fact, he placed another order. Like, very soon after that. Um, and I got the ones back. And guess what? They were fine. <laughs> they didn't have the defect. But I wouldn't have changed anything about that transaction except for it not having to happen. I needed those back. So, um, do the right thing. My philosophy is do the right thing. If you made a product that had a flaw, fix the flaw. And if it costs you money, it costs you money. That's the cost of having a flaw. Okay. Almost says, you are not changing form, fit, or function. You are adding in a feature not to the requirement. Say you had 20 of these out there. You could print a, a stop set, arbor, holder, screw on, bracket, blah, blah, blah. Yes, I've already thought about that. I could have I could print a little plastic widget which gets glued you know snaps on or glues you know, maybe both it it goes on with a drop of glue and it does the function and I would send that out to whoever wants it that's what I would do no problem um, but do I have an obligation to someone who bought a product you know a year ago and has been using it and all of a sudden I improve it do I, do I have an obligation to go back and improve their product no i don't would i take care of them if they asked about it i'd probably do something yeah so it, it this is the thing now here it, dbx says also might be a difference between changing the price and fixing a flaw right oh almost says yeah fix the issues on your time uh it, integrity yeah so that's a story. Um, in this particular case, <laughs> nothing left the door yet. So we have this little feature, which this little stupid little feature, which is really a, a quality of life improvement. And I'm very excited about it. Um, so that's the story of how my wife improved the balancing stand. And now I have to increase her cut. It's just the way it is. If I want to live indoors, you got to do what you got to do. 
So I think we did it, guys. Uh, we got to the top of the hour and covered all the planned topics. If anybody has a question, get it in the chat right now. Otherwise, I think we're going to have to wrap this up and uh, wait for another week. Uh, this was a fun week, except for the tennis elbow, which has a long name that I cannot pronounce. Uh, much was done this week. A lot of computer cycles this week. I, I don't talk a lot about this stuff, but I've been doing some uh, antenna simulation and optimization. And the big computer has been just cranking all week. Uh, let's see. I, I'm checking all the sources. I think we got everybody's questions. So I'm going to say have a great week. Uh, we'll see you guys next week. I have no idea what the plan is. There's no plan, no weapons, no backup. Just the way I like it. All right, man. <laughs> you rock out too, Unix. And uh, nice to see everybody here. We'll see you next Sunday for the PFG Live. And it will be at the same bat time, same bat channel. Uh, 1,400 on the East Coast and 1,800 on the Zulu Coast. Flat Lapper, nice seeing you. Have an awesome day. Carl, thanks for being here. Uh, we're on our way to fully dry filaments. Uh, CJ Stevens, have a great week yourself, sir. Almost. You're awesome. Uh, I want to talk to you on chat about the other thing uh, and the thing with the thing. And uh, let's see. Who else is here? DBX, thanks for checking in on the Discord side, buddy. Uh, we're going to get Discord rocking a little more. Uh, Bob Isaac, thanks for being here, sir, and enjoy this glorious weather that we're sharing. It's pretty nice. I might sit on the back deck and snooze for a while after this. This has been the PFG Live brought to you by Kinetic Precision, who says, we're flat, you should be flat, and we'll see you next week.